We've all gone to websites only to be presented with a pop-up asking if we'll accept the cookies. Well, did you know that by accepting those cookies, you're allowing that website to collect data on you? These websites will then sell your information to data brokers, who will then create a digital profile of you, which can be used by banks, advertisers, and scammers against you. Well, thanks to Incogni, you no longer need to worry about your data being stolen and sold. Incogni is a tool that will remove your data from these companies for you. All you need to do is sign up, allow Incogni to work for you, and they will contact data brokers on your behalf and guarantee that your digital ID is removed from the internet. Use the link in the description and episode notes and get Incogni today for $6.49 per month on a year plan and protect your data and digital ID. With continual development in technology, hackers and cyber criminals are getting better and better at installing viruses and hacking your electronic devices. We've all had antivirus software, but your run-of-the-mill software just isn't good enough anymore. With Surfshark Antivirus, not only will you have antivirus scans and real-time virus protection, but you'll also have access to a VPN. You'll be protected from targeted ads and tracking. You'll be notified if your data gets leaked by data brokers, and most importantly, it's incredibly easy to set up and use. If you feel like your online protection should be better, use the link in the description and episode notes to get 76% off Surfshark Antivirus today and feel safe every day on your devices. Hello, and welcome to the Essential Reads podcast. I'm Isaac, and my goal is to bring to you a bunch of audiobooks from your favourite classic authors such as Orson Welles, Robert Louis Stevenson, John Steinbeck, and many more. Come join me on this journey to help get these books to the masses in an easy, accessible way. Let's start. The mechanical hound slept, but did not sleep. Lived, but did not live in its gently humming, gently vibrating, softly illuminated kennel back in a dark corner of the firehouse. The dim light of one in the morning... The moonlight from the open sky framed through the great window touched here and there on the brass and copper and steel of the faintly trembling beast. Light flickered on the bits of ruby glass and on the sensitive capillary hairs in the nylon-brushed nostrils of the creature that quivered gently, gently, gently on its eight legs spidered underneath on rubber-padded paws. Montag slid down the brass pole. He went out to look at the city and the clouds had cleared away completely, and he lit a cigarette and came back to bend down and look at the hound. It was like a great bee come home from some field where the honey is full of poison wilderness of insanity and nightmare, its body crammed with that over-rich nectar, and now it was sleeping the evil out of itself. Hello, whispered Montag, Fascinated as always with the dead beast, the living beast. Nights, when things got dull, which was every night, the men slid down the brass poles and set the ticking combinations of the old factory system of the hound and let loose rats in the firehouse area away, and sometimes chickens, and sometimes cats that would have to be drowned anyway, and there would be betting to see which the hound would seize first. The animals were turned loose. Three seconds later, The game was done. The rat, cat, or chicken caught half across the areaway, gripped in gentling paws, while a four-inch hollow steel needle 
plunged down from the proboscis of the hound to inject massive jolts of morphine, or procaine. The pawn was then tossed in the incinerator. A new game began. Montag stayed upstairs most nights when this went on. There'd been a time, two years ago, when he had bet with the best of them, and he had lost a week's salary and faced Mildred's insane anger, which showed itself in veins and blotches. But now, at night, he lay in his bunk, face turned to the wall, listening to whoops of laughter below, and the piano string scurry of rat feet, the violin squeaking of mice, and the great shadowing, motion silence of the hound leaping out like a moth in the raw light, finding, holding its victim, inserting the needle, and going back to its kennel to die as if a switch had been turned. Montag touched the muzzle. The hound growled. Montag jumped back. The hound half rose in its kennel and looked at him, with green-blue neon light flickering in its suddenly activated eye bulbs. It growled again, a strange rasping combination of electrical sizzle, a frying sound, a scraping of metal, a turning of cogs that seemed rusty and ancient with suspicion. No, no boy, said Montag, his heart pounding. He saw the silver needle extended upon the air an inch, pull back, extend, pull back. The growl simmered in the beast, and it looked at him. Montag backed up. The hound took a step from its kennel. Montag grabbed the brass pole with one hand. The pole, reacting, slid upward and took him through the ceiling, quietly. He stepped off in the half-lit deck of the upper level. He was trembling, and his face was green-white. Below, the hound had sunk back upon its eight incredible insect legs and was humming to itself again, its multi-faceted eyes at peace. Montag stood, letting the fears pass by the drop hole. Behind him, four men at a card table under a green-lidded light in the corner glanced briefly, but said nothing. Only the man with the captain's hat and the sign of the phoenix on his hat, at last, curious, his playing cards in his thin hand, talked across the long room. Montag? It doesn't like me, said Montag. What? The hound? The captain studied his cards. Come off it. It doesn't like or dislike. It just functions. It's like a lesson in ballistics. It has a trajectory. We decide for it. It follows through. It targets itself, homes itself, and cuts off. It's only copper wire, storage, batteries, and electricity. Montag swallowed. Its calculators can be set to any combination. So many amino acids, so much sulfur, so much butterfat and alkaline, right? We all know that. All those chemical balances and percentages on all of us here in the house are recorded in the master file downstairs. It would be easy for someone to set up a partial combination on the hound's memory, a, a touch of amino acids, perhaps. That would account for what the animal did just now. Reacted toward me. Hell, said the captain. Irritated, but not completely angry, just... Just enough memory set up in it by someone so it growled when I touched it. Who would do a thing like that? asked the captain. 
You haven't got any enemies here, guy. None that I know of. We'll have the hound checked by our technicians tomorrow. This isn't the first time it's threatened me, said Montag. Last month it happened twice. We'll fix it up. Don't worry. But Montag did not move, and only stood, thinking of the ventilator grill in the hall at home, and what lay hidden behind the grill. If someone here, in the firehouse, knew about the ventilator, then mightn't they tell the hound? The captain came over to the drop hole, and gave Montag a questioning glance. It was just figuring, said Montag. What the hell does the hound think about down there nights? Is it coming alive on us, really? It makes me cold. It doesn't think anything we don't want it to think. That's sad, said Montag, quietly. Because we all put into it its hunting and finding and killing. What a shame, if that's all it can ever know. Beatty snorted, gently. Hell, it's a fine bit of craftsmanship, a good rifle that can fetch its own targets and guarantees the bullseye every time. That's why, said Montag, I wouldn't want to be its next victim. Why? You got a guilty conscience about something? Montag glanced up, swiftly. Beatty stood there, looking at him steadily with his eyes, while his mouth opened and began to laugh very softly. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven days. And as many times as he came out of the house, Clarice was there, somewhere in the world. Once he saw her shaking a walnut tree. Once he saw her sitting on the lawn, knitting a blue sweater. Three or four times he found a bouquet of late flowers on his porch, or a handful of chestnuts in a little sack, or some autumn leaves neatly pinned to a sheet of white paper and thumbtacked to his door. Every day, Clarice walked him to the corner. One day, it was raining. The next, it was clear. The day after that, the wind blew strong. And the day after that, it was mild and calm. And the day after that, the day was like a furnace of summer, and Clarice with her face all sunburnt by late afternoon. Why is it? he said one time at the subway entrance. I feel like I've known you so many years. Because I like you, she said, and I don't want anything from you, and because we know each other. You make me feel very old, and much like a father. Now you explain, she said, why you don't have any daughters like me, if you love children so much. I don't know. You're joking. I mean... He stopped and shook his head. Well, my wife, she... She just never wanted any children at all. The girl stopped smiling. I'm sorry. I really thought you were having fun at my expense. I'm a fool. No, no he said. It was a good question. It's been a long time since anyone cared enough to ask. A good question. Let's talk about something else. Have you ever smelled old leaves? Don't they smell like cinnamon? Here, smell. Why, yes, it is like cinnamon in a way. She looked at him with clear, dark eyes. You always seem shocked. It's just I haven't had time. 
Did you look at the stretched out billboard like I told you? I think so, yes. <laughs> He had to laugh. Your laugh sounds much nicer than it did. Does it? Much more relaxed. He felt at ease and comfortable. Why aren't you in school? I see you every day wandering around. Oh, they don't miss me, she said. I'm antisocial, they say. I don't mix. It's so strange. I'm very social indeed. It all depends on what you mean by social, doesn't it? Social to me means talking about things like this. She rattled some chestnuts that had fallen off the tree in the front yard. Or talking about how strange the world is. Being with people is nice. But I don't think it's social to get a bunch of people together and then not let them talk. Do you? An hour of TV class, an hour of basketball or baseball or running, another hour of transcription, history or painting pictures, and more sports, but. Do you know, we never ask questions, or. At least most don't. They just run the answers at you, bing, bing, bing. And us, sitting there for four more hours of film teacher. That's not social to me at all. It's a lot of funnels and a lot of water poured down the spout and out the bottom. And them telling us it's wine when it's not. They run us so ragged, by the end of the day, we can't do anything but go to bed or head to a fun park to bully people around, break window panes in the window pane smasher place, or wreck cars in the car wrecker place with the big steel ball, or go out in cars and race in the streets trying to see how close you can get to lampposts, playing chicken and knock hubcaps. I guess I'm everything they say I am, all right? I haven't any friends. That's supposed to prove I'm abnormal, but. Everyone I know is either shouting or dancing around like wild or beating up one another. Do you notice how people hurt each other nowadays? You sound so very old. Sometimes I'm ancient. I'm afraid of children my own age. They kill each other. Did it always used to be that way? My uncle says no. Six of my friends have been shot in the last year alone. Ten of them died in car wrecks. I'm afraid of them and. They don't like me because I'm afraid. My uncle says his grandfather remembered when children didn't kill each other, but that was a long time ago when they had things different. They believed in responsibility, my uncle says. Do you know, I'm responsible. I was spanked when I needed it years ago, and I do all the shopping and house cleaning by hand. But most of all, she said, I like to watch people. Sometimes I ride the subway all day and look at them and listen to them. I just want to figure out who they are and what they want and where they're going. Sometimes、I、even go to the fun parks and ride in the jet cars when they race to the edge of town at midnight and police don't care as long as they're insured. As long as everyone has 10,000 insurance, everyone's happy. Sometimes I sneak around and listen in subways or I listen at soda fountains. And you know what? What? People don't talk about anything. Oh, they must. No, not anything. They name a lot of cars or clothes or swimming pools mostly and say how swell, but they all say the same things and nobody says anything different from anyone else. And most of the time in the cafes, they have the joke boxes on and the same jokes most of the time, or the musical wall lit and all the colored patterns running up and down. But it's only color and all abstract. And at the museums, have you ever been? 
It's all abstract. That's all there is now. My uncle says it was different once. A long time back, sometimes, pictures said things, or, or even showed people. Your uncle said. Your uncle said. Your uncle must be a remarkable man. He is. He certainly is. Well, I've got to be going. Goodbye, Mr. Montag. Goodbye. Goodbye. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven days. The Firehouse. Montag, you shut up that pole like a bird up a tree. Third day. Montag, I see you came in the back door this time. The hound bother you? No, no. Fourth day. Montag, a funny thing, heard tell this morning. Fireman in Seattle, purposely set a mechanical hound to his own chemical complex and let it loose. What kind of suicide would you call that? Five, six, seven days. And then Clarice was gone. He didn't know what there was about the afternoon, but it was not seeing her somewhere in the world. The lawn was empty, the trees empty, the street empty. And while at first he did not even know he missed her, or was even looking for her, the fact was that by the time he reached the subway, there were vague stirrings of unease in him. Something was the matter. His routine had been disturbed. A simple routine, true, established in a short few days, and yet he almost turned back to make the walk again, to give her time to appear. He was certain if he tried the same route, everything would work out fine. But it was late, and the arrival of his train had to put a stop to his plan. The flutter of cards, motion of hands, of eyelids, the drone of the time voice in the firehouse ceiling. One thirty-five, Thursday morning, November 4th. One thirty-six, one thirty-seven a.m. The tick of the playing cards on the greasy tabletop. All the sounds came to Montag, behind his closed eyes, behind the barrier he had momentarily erected. He could feel the firehouse full of glitter and shine and silence, of brass colours, the colours of coins, of gold, of silver. The unseen men across the table were sighing on their cards, waiting. One forty-five. The voice clock mourned out the cold hour of a cold morning of a still colder year. What's wrong, Montag? Montag opened his eyes. A radio hummed somewhere. War may be declared any hour. This country stands ready to defend its... The firehouse trembled as a great flight of jet planes whistled a single note across the black morning sky. Montag blinked. Beatty was looking at him as if he were a museum statue. At any moment, Beatty might rise and walk about him, touching, exploring his guilt and self-consciousness. Guilt? What guilt was that? Your play, Montag. Montag looked at these men, whose faces were sunburnt by a thousand real and ten thousand imaginary fires, whose work flushed their cheeks and fevered their eyes. These men, who looked steadily into their platinum igniter flames as they lit their eternally burning black pipes. They, and their charcoal hair, 
and soot-coloured brows, and bluish, ash-mered cheeks where they had shaven close, but their heritage showed. Montag started up, his mouth opened. Had he ever seen a fireman that didn't have black hair, black brows, a fiery face, and a bluish steel-shaved but unshaved look? These men were all mirror images of himself. Were all firemen picked for their looks as well as their proclivities? The colour of cinders and ash about them, and the continual smell of burning from their pipes. Captain Beatty there, rising in thunderheads of tobacco smoke. Beatty, opening a fresh tobacco packet, crumpling the cellophane into the sound of fire. Montag looked at the cards in his own hand. I've been thinking about last week, about the fire last week, about the man whose library we fixed. What happened to him? They took him, they took him, screaming off to the asylum. But he wasn't insane. Beatty arranged his cards, quietly. Any man's insane who thinks he can fool the government and us. I tried to imagine, said Montag, just how it would feel. I mean, to have firemen burn our houses and books. We haven't any books. But if we did have some, you got some? Beatty blinked, slowly. No. Montag gazed beyond them, to the wall, with typed lists of a million forbidden books. Their names leapt in fire, burning down the years under his axe and his hose, which sprayed not water, but kerosene. No. But in his mind, a cool wind started up, and blew out of the ventilator grill at home, softly softly chilling his face. And again, he saw himself in the green park talking to an old man, a very old man, and the wind from the park was cold too. Montag hesitated. Was it always like this? The firehouse? Our work? I mean, well, once upon a time. Once upon a time? Beatty said. What kind of talk is that? Fool, thought Montag to himself. You'll give it away. At the last fire, a book of fairy tales. He'd glanced at a simple line. I mean, he said, in the old days, before homes were completely fireproofed. Suddenly, it seemed a much younger voice was speaking to him, for he opened his mouth and it was Clarice McKellen saying, didn't firemen prevent fires rather than stoke them up and get them going? That's rich. Stoneman and Black drew forth their rule books, which contained brief histories of the firemen of America, and laid them out where Montag, though long familiar with them, might read, Established, 1790, to burn English-influenced books in the colonies. First fireman, Benjamin Franklin. Rule 1. Answer the alarm swiftly. 2. Start the fire swiftly. 3. Burn everything. 4. Report back to firehouse immediately. 5. Stand alert for other alarms. Everyone watched Montag. He did not move. The alarm sounded. The bell in the ceiling kicked itself 200 times. Suddenly, there were four empty chairs. The cards fell in a flurry of snow. The brass pole shivered. The men were gone.
Montag sat in his chair. Below, the orange dragon coughed into life. Montag slid down the pole like a man in a dream. The mechanical hound leapt up in its kennel, its eyes all green flame. Montag, you forgot your helmet! He seized it off the wall behind him, ran, leapt, and they were off, the night wind hammering about their siren scream and their mighty metal thunder. It was a flaking, three-story house in the ancient part of the city, a century old if it was a day, but like all houses, it had been given a thin, fireproof plastic sheath many years ago, and this preservative shell seemed to be the only thing holding it in the sky. Here we are! The engine slammed to a stop. Beatty, Stoneman, and Black ran up the sidewalk. Suddenly odious and fat in the plump fireproof slickers, Montag followed. They crashed the front door and grabbed at a woman. Though she was not running, she was not trying to escape. She was only standing, weaving from side to side, her eyes fixed upon a nothingness in the wall as if they had fixed her a terrible blow upon the head. Her tongue was moving in her mouth, and her eyes seemed to be trying to remember something. And then they remembered, and her tongue moved again. Play the man, Master Ridley. We shall this day light such a candle by God's grace in England, and as I trust, shall never be put out. Enough of that, said Beatty. Where are they? He slammed her face with amazing objectivity and repeated the question. The woman's eyes came to focus upon Beatty. You know where they are or you wouldn't be here, she said. Stoneman held out the telephone alarm card with the complaint signed in telephone duplicate on the back. Have reason to suspect Attic 11, number 11 Elm Street, E.B. That would be Mrs. Blick, my neighbour, said the woman reading the initials. All right, men, let's get them. Next thing, they're up in musty blackness, swinging silver hatchets at doors that were, after all, unlocked, tumbling through like boys, all rollick and shout. Hey! A mountain of books sprang down upon Montag as he climbed shuddering up the sheer stairwell. How inconvenient! Always before it had been like snuffing a candle. The police went first, an adhesive taped the victim's mouth, and bandaged him up in their glittering beetle cars, so when you arrive you found an empty house. You weren't hurting anyone, you were hurting only things. And since things couldn't really be hurt, since things felt nothing, and things don't scream or whimper, as this woman might begin to scream and cry out, there was nothing to tease your conscience later. It was simply cleaning up. Janitorial work, essentially. Everything to its proper place. Quick with the kerosene. Who's got a match? But now, tonight, Someone had slipped. This woman was spoiling the ritual. The men were making too much noise, laughing, joking to cover her terrible, accusing silence below. She made the empty rooms roar with accusation and shake down a fine dust of guilt that was sucked in their nostrils as they plunged about. It was neither cricket nor correct. Montag felt an immense irritation. She shouldn't be here, on top of everything. Books bombarded his shoulders, his arms, his upturned face. A book alighted, almost obediently, like a white pigeon in his hands, wings fluttering. In the dim, wavering light, 
a page hung open, and it was like a snowy feather, the words delicately painted thereon. In all the rush and fervour, Montag had only an instant to read a line, but it blazed in his mind for the next minute as he stamped there with fiery steel. Time has fallen asleep in the afternoon sunshine. He dropped the book. Immediately, another fell into his arms. Montag, up here! Montag's hand, closed like a mouth, crushed the book with wild devotion, with an insanity of mindlessness to his chest. The men above were hurling shovelfuls of magazines into the dusty air. They fell like slaughtering birds, and the woman stood below, like a small girl among their bodies. Montag had done nothing. His hand had done it all. His hand, with a brain of its own, with a conscience and a curiosity in each trembling finger, had turned thief. Now it plunged the book back under his arm, pressed it tight into the sweating armpit, rushed out empty with a magician's flourish. Look here, innocent, look. He gazed, shaken at that white hand. He held it out, he held it way out as if he were far-sighted. He held it close, as if he were blind. Montag! He jerked about. Don't stand there, idiot! The books lay like a great mound of fishes left to dry. The men danced and slipped and fell over them. Titles glittered their golden eyes, falling. Gone. Kerosene! They pumped the cold fluid from the numbered 451 tanks strapped to their shoulders. They coated each book. They pumped rooms full of it. They hurried downstairs. Montag staggered after them in the kerosene fumes. Come on, woman! The woman knelt among the books, touching the drenched leather and cardboard, reading the gilt titles with her fingers while her eyes accused Montag. You can't ever have my books, she said. You know the law, said Beatty. Where's your common sense? None of these books agree with each other. You've been locked up here for years with the regular damned Tower of Babel. Snap out of it. The people in those books never lived. Come on now. She shook her head. The whole house is going up, said Beatty. The men walked clumsily to the door. They glanced back at Montag, who stood near the woman. You're not leaving her here, he protested. She won't come. Force her, then! Beatty raised his hand, in which was concealed the igniter. We're due back at the house. Besides, these fanatics always try suicide. The pattern's familiar. Montag placed his hand on the woman's elbow. You can come with me. No, she said. Thank you, anyway. I'm counting to ten, said Beatty. One. Two. Please, said Montag. Go on, said the woman. Three. Four. Here. Montag pulled at the woman. The woman replied quietly. I want to stay here. Five. Six. You can stop counting, she said. She opened the fingers of one hand slightly, and in the palm of the hand was a single, slender object. 
an ordinary kitchen match. The sight of it rushed the men out and down away from the house. Captain Beatty, keeping his dignity, backed slowly through the front door, his pink face burnt and shiny from a thousand fires and night excitements. God, thought Montag. Kerosene? How true. Always at night the alarm comes. Never by day. Is it because the fire's prettier at night? More spectacle? A better show? The pink face of Beatty now showed the faintest panic at the door. The woman's hand twitched on the single matchstick. The fumes of kerosene bloomed up about her. Montag felt the hidden book pound like a heart against his chest. Go on, said the woman, and Montag felt himself back away and away, out of the door, after Beatty, down the steps, across the lawn, where the path of kerosene lay like the track of some evil snail. On the front porch, where she had come to weigh them quietly with her eyes, her quietness a condemnation, the woman stood, motionless. Beatty flicked his fingers to spark the kerosene. He was too late. Montag gasped. The woman on the porch reached out with contempt for all of them and struck the kitchen match against the railing. People ran out of houses all down the street. They said nothing on their way back to the firehouse. Nobody looked at anyone else. Montag sat in the front seat with Beatty and Black. They did not even smoke their pipes. They sat there, looking out of the front of the great salamander as they turned a corner and went silently on. Master Ridley? said Montag at last. What? said Beatty. She said, Master Ridley. She said some crazy things when we came in the door. Play the man, she said. Master Ridley, something, something, something. We shall this day light such a candle by God's grace in England as I trust shall never be put out, said Beatty. Stoneman glanced over at the captain, as did Montag, startled. Beatty rubbed his chin. A man named Latimer said that to a man named Nicholas Ridley as they were being burned alive at Oxford for heresy on October 16th, 1555. Montag and Stoneman went back to looking at the street as it moved under the engine's wheels. I'm full of bits and pieces, said Beatty. Most fire captains have to be. Sometimes I surprise myself. Watch it, stone man. Stoneman braked the truck. Damn, said Beatty. You've gone right by the corner where we turn for the firehouse. Thank you so very much for listening. If you enjoyed, please leave a review. And if you really want to support me, share this chapter with your friends, family, and whoever you feel would enjoy it. And if you really wish to support me, head to my Patreon. The link is in the episode notes. If you choose to follow the podcast, you'll have three new chapters per week, Monday, Wednesday, and Friday. Once again, I thank you for listening. And until next time, bye-bye.